book of Jonah, chapter 1. We're going to start a series this morning on a book that Martin Luther said, Martin Luther, going way back to the 1500s Reformation, he said it was one of the strangest books in the Bible because it contains one of the strangest stories. Uh, You may even use the word bizarre when you read this story. And there is a tendency on the part of some in an intellectual, well-educated, sophisticated culture to say, this can't be true. Okay? And I'm going to beg to differ with you for a couple of reasons. I believe that the book of Jonah is historical narrative recorded under the inspiration of God to teach us about God himself. The focus of the book is not Jonah. Jonah is a primary character in the book, but he is not the primary character. The purpose of the book is not to tell you about Jonah's rebellion. God doesn't want you to get done reading this book and say, I'm not going there. Not the purpose of the book. The purpose of the book is larger and it is greater. So I think it's important that we first establish the historical nature of this book. Jonah was a historical person. He was a prophet. A prophet in the Old Testament was someone who heard from God and then went to speak for God. That was their job. What is God saying? How am I going to say it? Okay, receive a message, share a message. Jonah was a historical prophet at the time of Jeroboam II, which means he functioned in the northern part of Israel at the time of about 750 years prior to the coming of Jesus Christ. Okay, so I just want to give you a little, and that's about 30 years before the whole nation of Israel, the ten northern tribes, collapses under the tyranny of the Assyrian Empire. Okay, and that the importance of that connection will come up in just a few minutes. Jonah was, as verse 1 says, the son of Amittai. And that's exactly what is referenced. If you go back to 2 Kings chapter 14 and verse 25, don't turn there. Let me just give you this idea. He is a man who prophesied under Jeroboam II about the rebuilding and establishing of the northern boundaries of Israel in Assyria. Okay, and that word that came from Jonah was a word that God graciously fulfilled. So he is a prophet, but he also has a reputation as a successful prophet. He was the one, verse 25 says, that is Jeroboam II, was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath to the Sea of the Arabah in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel that was spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet from Gepher. Okay, so you can reach back from the book of Jonah into the book of 2 Kings and find a historical reference to Jonah, name given, town given. Same thing happens at the beginning of the book of Jonah. So there's historical reference to this man. As a successful prophet, who probably, as a result of this, this new realm of security coming to the northern tribes, was filled with some sense of national pride and accomplishment. He spoke the word of God, and God did his work. Jesus twice references the events in the book of Jonah as historical. Matthew chapter 12, verse 39. Jesus said, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a miraculous sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah, the prophet. Okay, what is Jesus referencing? He's referencing his resurrection, saying that it will be like Jonah coming forth from, figuratively speaking, the dead through this whale. Okay, that's the, Jesus refers back to it as an absolute historical fact. 
verse 41 of Matthew 12. The men of Nineveh, that is the city that Jonah is going to be called to go to, will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Which means the people in Nineveh are what? They are historical individuals who heard the word of God from Jonah and repented. And Jesus references twice the historical aspects of, these bo- of this book. The other interesting historical side note is that in the Roman catechisms, or in the Roman, Roman catacombs, there are drawings of the story of Jesus and drawings of the story of Jonah set against each other as parallels, one revealing the other, because they knew that the writings of Jonah were, in fact, historical narratives. So as we move into this study, here's what I want you to see as the key to this book, the the primary theme of the book of Jonah. It is not primarily a story, a, a bizarre story, about a man swallowed by a fish. In it, we will see God's relentless love for rebels. That is what the book of Jonah is about. What is God's response to the rebellion of humanity? As you look at it, studying Jonah's life, you will see yourself. But as you study, you will see God's intervention into your life. We will see his tender and relentless love on numerous occasions. And that will be the privilege of studying this book. Ray Stedman made this observation. He said, this book is the most well-known and least understood book of the Bible. You can talk to people pretty much at large in a secular culture. Most of them have heard the story of Jonah. Most of them, and truthfully, most of us as Christians, have no true understanding of what this book is about. We basically see it as a book about a man who rebelled, hit bad consequences, and came back. He's kind of a recovered individual. He got his life together. That's what we see as the theme. That's not the theme of this book. The book is about Jonah's call at the beginning, verses 1 and 2. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, Jonah's name means dove. His father's name means truth, which is to say what? Jonah's real name, Jonah, son of Abitai, means a messenger of God's faithfulness or of God's truthfulness. It'll be fascinating to see how he does not in any way live up to his name in this first chapter. And hopefully we will look for ourselves. In verse 1, he is given... In verse 2, he's given a clear call. Go to the great city of Nineveh. And you're going to find, if you want to circle the word great, every time it appears in the book of Jonah, you will find it, I think it's up to 13 or 14 times. The word great becomes a significant theme in the book of Jonah. The call is to go, a clear and unambiguous call is to go to the great city of Nineveh, preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. So, First thing I want to identify is Jonah's call, a clear and unambiguous call to go to the city of Nineveh. Where is Nineveh? Nineveh is 500 miles from the northern border of Israel. It is at dead center in the land that we now know as the land of Iraq. It's on the river Euphrates. You've heard that, the name of that river if you've been listening to news over the last 10 years on numerous occasions. It is a city that is a leading or capital city amongst the Assyrians who are the sworn enemies of the nation of Israel. God says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach against it. I'm going to give you a message. I want you to take this message and share this message with them. What is the city like? Well, first we find that it is a sinful city. Verse 2, 
God says to Jonah, its wickedness has come up before me. That's a theme that you will find often in the Old Testament. The sin of the Amorites being full and God's judgment coming. Genesis 18, the issue with Sodom and Gomorrah. And the judge, God says, the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah has come up before me, and it is time now for God to act. Nineveh is getting precariously close to experiencing the judgment of God. It is a sinful city. It is also a great city. If you go to chapter 3 and verse 3, it says that it takes three days to walk throughout this city. Most historians estimate that the borders of this city extended some 50 to 60 miles in circumference. A massive city, chapter 4 tells us, with 120,000 citizens. God says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh, a sinful city, the Las Vegas of the ancient world, a great city. And then it is an enemy city, and I think this is where the rub comes for Jonah. He's thinking, I'm not going there. Do you know who they are? They were, the, they were known as an enemy city to Israel. It was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, which has already come against two decades before this, has already come into the land of Naphtali and Zebulun. Go read this. Nebulon and Naphtali are the, are the tribal regions in the nation of Israel in the north beside the Sea of Galilee. Smack dab in the middle of Zebulun and Naphtali are two cities. You remember the name of one very specifically. Nazareth and Geth. Heifer, where Jonah is from. Fascinating that God would bring Jonah up in the same place as the Savior. Because that was the purpose of his call. Go and cry against that city. Let them know that danger is coming. That's exactly what the Savior does for us. When he comes and speaks the truth to us and then gives his life so graciously for us. What is he saying to him? Jonah, I want you to go warn them, preach against, cry against. Because God's desire clearly is to give them a chance to repent. Jonah starts thinking about the city that has a brutal reputation. They are the Phoenicians who invented death by crucifixion. Romans perfected it. They're the people that invented the torturous way of killing people by burying them in the ground up to their neck. Let them stay there for days and then sever their head. Jonah had seen the viciousness of these people. And God says to Jonah, Jonah, I want you to go and do what I would do. I want you to go to them. Now think about this. I understand Jonah's response. God asked me to go to talk to one person, and what do I do? Okay, so don't be a harsh critic as you clearly evaluate his profound rebellion. See yourself in the story and then look to God because you, as you see it, will desperately need his grace. Jonah's response for a prophet is surprising, if not shocking. God says, I want you to go to Nineveh. That means I want you to go east. Verse 3, but Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish, which is which direction? Okay, west. And if you have a, 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 a study Bible with notes in it, you're seeing that the city of Tarshish is on the extreme end of the Mediterranean Sea uh, by the country of Spain. It is 2,000 miles away from the land of Palestine. Okay? What's Jonah thinking? I'm not going to Nineveh, and I'm going to get as far away as I possibly can from God's call. Okay, that, that's his deliberate, willful, and defiant rebellion against God. 
Why is he afraid? Why is he reluctant? Well, look, I mean, at one level, he hates these people. They're the sworn enemy of his homeland, of which he is very proud and has seen God work in it. But there's also something else that's going to come up when you get to the end of the book, and that is this. He knows what God is like. His primary concern, ultimately, we will see as we get to the end of the book, is that God is probably going to show them mercy. And he doesn't have an appreciation for that yet in his life. And so he is reluctant to obey the command of God. What is Jonah saying? I have a better plan than God's plan. And it does not involve compassion for Nineveh. He is unhappy with God's clear direction. He is trusting himself instead of God's clear directive. Folks, when you enter into that territory in your life where you know what it is to do good and don't do it, you are entering into sin and endangering yourself and those around you. Jonah's fleeing for the most western port. It was as far as ships went in the ancient world because they didn't cross the ocean at that time for absolute fear and dread of it. Pick the story up in verse 3. I just want to walk you through this and then I want to draw some principles out of it. Jonah ran to flee from God. And the, story, the, the verse gives us amazing detail. He went down to the port of Joppa, which is on the, on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea, on the border of the nation of Israel. There he buys a ticket to get to Tarshish on a ship. Okay, This is all willful and clearly intentional. So he gets on the boat, and what does it say? They sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now, in verse 3, I underlined these statements. Jonah ran, ran away from the Lord. Now, I'm just thinking to myself, how can you do that? Okay, you can't do that. End of verse 3, it says, he did it to flee from the Lord, to escape the reach of God. See, that's what sin will do. It will blind us to our real need and make us think that we can do things that we can't do. Verse 4, the intervention of God. Verse 4 says, Then the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that it threatened to break up the ship. Now, this is a fascinating statement. If you are looking at the New American Standard Version, probably King James also, it says that God hurled a wind at the ship. Fascinating statement. God hurls a wind that is so strong and devastating that the, 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 the sailors sense that it threatens to break up the ship. So to lighten the ship and bring it up further out of the waves, they start to hurl cargo. God hurls the wind, they start hurling cargo. It's a fascinating juxtaposition. So God is intervening. God is starting to move into this circumstance. Verses 5 and 6, or I'm sorry, verse Verse 5, it says, the, the, all the sailors were afraid and cried out each to his own God, and they threw the cargo in, to, in the sea to lighten up the ship. What happened here? The value of human life is rising above material things. That's what troubles will do in your life. They will bring to you some degree of clarity about what matters. Verse 5, all the sailors were afraid. Each is crying out to his own God. But Jonah, verse 5 had gone below the deck where he lay down and fell asleep. Now, when I read this, I have this picture of Mark chapter 4, Jesus going down on the ship and falling asleep. And I see a fascinating contrast, the reason Jonah falls asleep and the reason that Jesus falls asleep. Jesus to teach to his disciples a powerful lesson about the power of God. 
Jonah, callous disregard. He is a man who is sinking in depression as he runs from God. The weight of his decision is falling down upon him. The captain comes down and says, how can you sleep? Get up, call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. So a pagan captain is now saying to a man of God, a prophet, get up, pray to your God. Folks, how far away from God is Jonah going? He isn't to Spain yet, but he's already further away than that in his rebellion. Verse 7, Jonah awakens from his sleep, comes up on the deck of the ship. Verse 7, then the sailors, and notice verse 4 begins with, then the Lord hurled. Verse 7, then the sailors said to each other, come let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast the lots or rolled the dice and everything pointed to who? To Jonah. And Jonah's thinking, in brokenness, in a sense of guilt, in a sense of understanding that God is working in this. Proverbs 16 and verse 22 says this. It says, the lot is cast into the lap. The decision is from the Lord. Okay, that is to say that God's sovereignty extends down to the smallest and my, most minute areas of our lives. 8 through 10. So they ask him, tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? Now, Ever have anybody come and like accost you with questions like that? I mean, these people are in, they are in dread, they are in fear, they are in panic for their own lives. And so they hammer him and bring him through confrontation into a powerful place. Verse 9, he says, I am a Hebrew, I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. Okay, what is Jonah saying? This is no mistake. This storm that we are facing is under the purview of the sovereignty of God. It is the direction of His hand. The God that I know, and you're going to find out in a second, He's already told them that He's running from Him. He's the one who is now relentlessly pursuing His man. They are stunned by His rebellion. So they, uh, verse 9, or verse 10, I'm sorry. This terrified them. And they said, what have you done? And it's kind of a, you worship the God who created the world, the living and true God, and you're running from him? They are mystified by the level and deliberate nature of the rebellion that Jonah is participating in. They know that he has endangered himself. Second half of the verse. They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. Sullen, downcast, he walks onto the ship in the port of, of Joppa. They see in his eyes an unwillingness to connect with others. An unwillingness to make contact, eye contact. Why? He's a guilty man. He is stricken with me. He is running from God. And if you are God's child, here's what you're going to find. You are never able to successfully rebel against him. He, in his pursuit of you, will be, as he is in this case, relentless. Verse 11, it says, the sea was getting rougher and rougher. So what's going on? God is cranking it up. So they ask him, what shall we do to make the sea calm down for us? Jonah, you worship the God who created all of this. What should we do? Verse 12, Jonah says, pick me up and throw me into the sea. And it will become calm. 
for I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. And folks, what happened here? God, through pagans, is bringing Jonah, and through the roll of dice, is bringing Jonah to a place of repentance. He is causing him to acknowledge the nature of what he has done. Verse 13, and this is the most fascinating twist in this story. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land. What they thought is, they heard this, and they, he's a prophet of God. They don't want to have his blood on their hands. So they start to try to row back and ignore the command of God through Jonah. But they could not, for the sea grew wilder and wilder before. Finally, they cry out to the Lord. They've made their decision. God is ratcheting it up. They cry out to him. Please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Which is to say what? They believe that when they cast Jonah into the ocean, what's going to happen? The sea's going to become calm. They have more faith than Jonah has. And what is Jonah doing? Either it's suicide out of guilt or he, he honest, it, it's a death wish. They know that when they throw him into the sea, what's, what is the natural consequence of that? He is going to die. They will not see him again. That is the clear flow of this story. But they see no way out. They throw him in and verse 15 fascinatingly tells us. They took Jonah and threw him overboard and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. What do you find fascinating about that? You know what I find fascinating about that? God used an inadequate, sinful man to do his will. Against his will, God used him. Pagans are praying to God. Because God is seeking his man. God can use any and will use any and all circumstances to fulfill his purpose. They see God for who he is. They are awestruck and cry out three times to Jehovah God, who is the creator of heaven and earth. They saw God for who he is. They worshiped him and made vows. They're on their knees making promises to God. And Jonah's life has apparently ended. What lessons do we learn from a man on the run from God? He ran away from the Lord, verse 2 says, to flee from, or verse 3 says, to flee from the Lord. But he got more than he bargained for. He is in this case defiant. God said, go east. He is going west. As far as he possibly can, he is now his own boss. He has declared independence from God. He's going to now run and operate his own life as he wishes. How will that go if he knows God? How will that go? Point number one this morning, and just four things that truths that emerge out, four lessons that we will learn when we run from God. Number one is this you can't outrun or escape God. Here's what's fascinating to me Jonah knows Jehovah God, he knows him to be the creator of the world. He knows all these truths about him, that he inhabits the praise of his people, that he's, he is present everywhere, that there's nowhere that you can go away from him. And yet Jonah is on the run. Folks, understand this. You can't run fast enough. You can't run far enough. There is no ship 
that can take you successfully out of God's presence. None are fast enough and none go far enough. Why? Psalm 139 and verse 7 says this. Where can I go from your spirit? This is written 250 years before the life of Jonah, a text that he would be profoundly familiar with. It's a promise. It's a promise from God that there is nowhere that you can go on planet Earth where you will be outside of my protective presence. And what did Jonah think? Jonah thought, I'm going to get on a ship and I'm going to be out of here and I'm going to be the boss of my own life. Okay, the lesson that he clearly learned is Psalm 139, verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? And where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I ride on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me up. I mean, that's a promise. What is it for Jonah right now? It's absolutely devastating truth. Because on the ship, who does he meet? He meets God. Through who? Through pagan sailors who when the storm comes, they start praying to all their different gods. Thinking the gods are angry, the god of the wind, the god of the sea, the god of the boat, whatever. They're pulling at everything they can possibly pull at, trying to find help. And Jonah is down there sleeping. Complete disregard for the needs of others. But he's learning a lesson. You can't run far enough. Osama bin Laden has been on the run for 10 years from the world's superpower, and we can't find him. We have incredible means to find him, and we can't. Jonah is a man on the run from God, and he can't hide. Because God's resources to track you down are infinite. He is present everywhere. Folks, think about this. Before you run, you can't get away. The purpose of running is to get away. To avoid danger, hazard. You can't escape God's presence. And you think to yourself, I wish I could get away from this pressure. In His grace, God will not let you run outside of the realm of His care. Because He loves you. You can't successfully escape His presence. And one of the things I think that we need to realize as Christians is this. The runaway posture of Jonah is my posture. Every time I sin, every time I ignore God, every time I declare independence from God and say, I'm going to do it my way. Every time I do that, my posture is Jonah's posture. And here's what I believe with all my heart. God's response to Jonah will be God's response to you. I've tried this. For three years, try to escape the call of God. The purpose of God. And all I can say to you is good luck. And good luck trying to, trying to find a smile on your face when your posture is running away from God in defiance. Amen. He will not bless you in that place. Will He be gracious to you? Yes. And that should absolutely blow you away. He will graciously come after you and seek you if you are His child. You cannot successfully escape his presence. If you belong to God, He, like any earthly father or mother, will not let you walk away from His protection uncontested. He will not do it because He is a God of incredible and awesome love. Second truth that emerges, and this one hurts. And 
there are times that God's hurts are good. When He desires to wound you before He heals you, He's going to sting you before He lets His Spirit sing to you. And this text, I think, clearly points out in verses 3 through 5. As Jonah runs away from God, verse 4, God hurls a great wind on the sea. Such a violent storm arose that it threatened to break up the ship, and all the sailors were afraid. Now, what does that say? Okay, I believe here's what it says. You can't control and limit the reach and consequences of your sinful choices. And everyone who makes sinful choices believes that they can control the outcome, the consequences, the result, and the effect. We step into sin thinking what? I can, I can limit this. I can control this. We don't understand that sin is slavery. Jonah became walking away from the king of kings who was his lord, his master. He walked away and said, I will run my own life. And what did he do? He brought himself into a place of personal slavery. Folks, every time you dabble in things that, that walk away from God, you may not be like Jonah. Just simply, he says go east and you say, I'm going west. He may say go east and you're just going a little bit southeast. And what we think is those small incremental steps, they're not serious. The consequences will come into our lives when we ignore God and in that ignoring Him, belittle Him, and we make ourselves our own masters. What we will find is the thing that we are pursuing will flip upside down and become the new master of our lives. Okay, that's what sin does. That's what addiction is. I will control this thing, ignoring God. And all of a sudden, what happens? It starts to come up, and it starts to control me. That's the nature and essence of sin. You can't control or limit the consequences because, and I'll give you just two simple thoughts, because sin, and I'm just going to cover this point, and I'm going to be done. Okay, so don't worry about me going to the next two. Not that you were. You can't control the consequences. You can't limit the reach. What will you find? You will find that sin always has a downward trajectory. Always. But what does Satan always promise? He promises an upward trajectory. Why do we go into sin in a way that belittles and denies and ignores God? Why do we do it? Because we think we can find happiness there. We are convinced that we know better than God. And that's where Jonah is in this situation. But what is he finding? Sin has a decidedly downward trajectory. He goes down to Joppa. Listen to the figures. Goes down to Joppa, goes down into the ship, and then down into the fish. I say, Jonah, how's that going? How are things? Folks, every time we, we mess in areas that we know God has prohibited, we are saying, I can control this. It won't impact those around me. Guess what? Jonah's behavior has hazarded every person on this ship. Not because he chose to hazard them, but because he chose to belittle and ignore God. And his sin has put everyone in his sphere of influence at risk. God ignoring behavior always leads downward. It has a gravitational pull. I was 
recently trying to rehabilitate my knee so that I could get back to jogging because at 50, it's harder to jog. So I, I was taught an exercise by a, a friend. He said, if you just like stand in the doorway and lean, you ever done this where you put your back against the wall and then you just try to maintain your position at, with your legs, horizontal, your thighs horizontal to the floor. Okay, here's what you'll learn. That's really hard. Okay, and, and why is it hard? Because your body has a gravitational pull. Okay, what happens? Your legs start to burn. You try to stay in that. God didn't create you to sit in that position. Okay, I can stand up here. I don't have any burn going right now. Okay, seriously, after 50, Bobby, you don't, it, it's, men can stand up like this. It doesn't hurt. Okay. What? What is Jonah learning? He's learning that trying to ignore God and dabble in sin is like trying to sit against the wall thinking it's a normal position. It's not. It's the posture of rebellion. And Jonah, in this attempt to ignore God, is finding out that this sin is heavy. It's a a hard thing. The way of transgressors, God says, is what? It's hard. It's difficult to run from God, if not at least impossible. You can't control and limit the consequences because it has a downward trajectory that you cannot ignore. What was Satan's lie to Adam and Eve? In the garden, the first temptation was what? Ignore God, eat that fruit, and you will be so happy. Well, guess what happened? They ate the fruit, ignored God, and God came in the cool of the day. And what did? Suddenly they realized something. We're not prepared for the presence of God. What we have done has a gravitational pull away from God. We always ignore God for an upside, though, don't we? Always. God says go east, and we say, I'm going to go west. Why? Because I think things will be better there. I think my life will be happier. I think things will go better for me. The other thing that we learn when we turn away from God in this kind of a way, in this understanding of I can't control and limit the consequences, what I also find is this. My sin will always affect others. These sailors have been put in an awful predicament because of the choices of a man named Jonah. Folks, please understand this. All sins and addictions promise joy, but always deliver pain. Proverbs says this, sow the wind and you will reap the whirlwind. Things will get like this storm does. Okay, it, it, it gets stronger and stronger as the God-belittling behavior continues on Jonah's part. The storm continues to intensify to get their attention. Because the way away from God is a hard way. Young people, please understand this. Small compromises in the area of sexuality will affect you and always someone else in your immediate life and in your future life. What does your world say? Oh, it's just purely biological and won't affect you. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Because it will affect you. And the effects of it will affect people around you. Understand, young person... That every step in sin, every step into sin, small or large, whether it is flagrant or subtle, it's all a step away from God that leads to uncontrollable consequences. 
That is an unavoidable truth. Mom and dad. Jonah has turned from God. He gets to the ship and they force him to tell him why. Verse 10 tells us that when he got on the ship, he told them that he was a man running from God. He is a man under the heavy burden of controlling his own life and of containing the consequences of the choice that he is decidedly making to get 2,000 miles away, as far as possible away from God. What's happening? When the ship is, is being tossed in a way that threatens to break it up, he doesn't even wake up. The slumber of sin, the slumber, the depression, just the complete anxiety, it doesn't even wake him up. Why? Because in his sin, what is he experiencing? He's experiencing diminished capacities. His abilities, his reasoning is beginning to disintegrate. Mom and Dad, here's what I want to say to you this morning. Sin in our lives will diminish our capacity to serve our kids. When we make choices, decisions, deliberate choices to move away from God, okay, we will hazard everyone in our sphere of influence. Jonah didn't believe that. Jonah thought, I'm going to get on a ship and I'm going to flee from God. And that's all that will matter. Please understand that there is a principle in the Bible called a principle of sowing and reaping. What you sow, you will reap. When you damage your marriage, you damage your kids. You can't contain the effects. When you make choices that are decidedly choices to go deliberately in the opposite direction in circumstances from what God wants, you are putting everyone in your sphere of influence at risk. And I believe this. I believe it is the grace of God to show us that truth. Now you may say to me, Tim, this morning, what's, what's, the way, what's the way back? I think the way back is Psalm 37 and verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Look, why is Jonah running? Because Jonah desires not to go to Nineveh. That's why he's running. And what does he get? He gets devastating consequences. Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. He'll give you what Jonah was looking for. You know what Jonah was looking for? Peace. God had given him a direction that didn't make sense to him. So what does he do? He dethrones God and exalts himself, makes himself God. And what does he find? He can't be happy. And God in His grace in this story pursues Jonah. So I ask you this morning this question. Okay? Would you read this first part of the story and say, where am I in this story? Where am I in this story? Are you trying to escape God's presence? And all you have to do to try to escape God's presence is nobody says to do and don't do it. Him that knows to do good, the Bible says, and doesn't do it to him, it is sin. Now, let me be very clear here. Okay, it is easy for us to point to issues that destabilize and threaten relationships and families. It is so easy to point to that stuff. Things that God says not to do that we do. It is easy to harp on those things. But folks, please understand this. Those are sins of commission. What about the things that God has told us to do that we just continue to ignore? That we don't do thinking. My lack of obedience 
will not hazard my family, will not hazard my relationships, will not affect my church. I'm here to tell you this morning that it does. It does. God wants us to be people that are deeply devoted to obeying and following and honoring him. And this, this story amazes me from this angle. Most of us look at this and we think, Jonah, you are being so what? So stupid. Right? Because here's what we think. If God gave me an audible, what would I do? I'd pack my bags and I'd do it. Okay? That's what, look, we believe that. That's why we read this story. We're like, good night. Does this guy not get it? The answer is no, he doesn't. But please, when you examine Jonah's life, understand that you don't get it either a lot of the time. Oh, you're good on the things that you don't do, that God says don't do. But what about the things that God says to do that we don't do? Okay, this is where I get convicted. Husbands, love your wives. Why don't yell at her? I don't get angry at her. And thinking, oh, that's enough. No. You know what? That kind of behavior that just simply doesn't do bad things to the mate damages the mate. Why? She needs your love. Wife, he needs your honor. Okay, and what do we think? We think, oh, no, I just, just don't do the bad things and everything will be okay. When you do that, you're declaring independence from God. And things will not go well. Okay, you can't escape his presence. You can't control the consequences. But we think that if God gave me a clear directive, I would do it. This morning, I would challenge you with this question. What clear directive from God are you ignoring as you walked into this place this morning? What what path of disregard for God are you contemplating this morning? Because it's possible to walk into God's house this morning thinking, when I get out of here, if I can get past the guilt, I'm going to do X, Y, or Z, or sometime this week. And here's what I want to say to you. You can't escape God's presence when you go and do it. Say it. Or whatever it is, you can't. And the consequences of it, you can't contain. Why does God allow the consequences? God allows the consequences to bring you back. Just like any parent, as I said earlier, will not let their kid go away unabated, unresisted. You will go after them hard. Why? Because that going after them hard is proof of your love. Here's what Jesus said to his disciples. He said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save. You know what he's come to do? He's come to seek and to save that which is lost. He's come to seek and to save rebels. So if you can see yourself this morning as someone who doesn't always do what God says and doesn't always avoid the things that God says to avoid, then you can identify with Jonah and understand that God, verse 4, hurled the storm. Why? He is blocking Jonah's plan. He is, what is he saying to Jonah? He's saying, Jonah, you're not God. You're not that good. I'm in control of the situation. And what happens? Ultimately, you're going to see God gets his man. He always does. The path of rebellion will never bring you what you desire. Only delighting in the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength will bring you the joy that God plans to give you. Would you bow your heads with me this morning?